Welcome to the Jewish World Podcast, where we go in depth on the issues most affecting the Jewish people and the Jewish state. I'm your host, Alex Rifchin, and this podcast is brought to you by the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. In this episode, we'll speak to Professor Gerald Steinberg about what happened at the Durban Conference in 2001, its legacy, and why Western countries are boycotting the Durban 4 Conference scheduled for later this year. We'll talk to the president of the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, Mary Kluck, about the origins of the Jewish community there, its role in the struggle against apartheid, and what it means to hear the term apartheid leveled against Israel today. We'll also examine the issue of online incitement and racism with Angelina Kazmaier, the head of online activism at ACT-IL, following the recent surge in social media anti-Semitism during the Gaza conflict. Professor Gerald Steinberg is founder and president of NGO Monitor and professor emeritus at Barilan University, where he founded the program on conflict management and negotiation. Professor Gerald Steinberg, welcome. Alex, pleasure to be here. So Australia, Canada, the US and the UK have all announced they will not participate in the Durban 4 conference in September, which marks the 20th anniversary of the original Durban conference and the adoption of the notorious Durban Declaration. Tell us about the legacy of Durban and why it's so important that states repudiate the Durban process. The Durban conference, I'll give a little background. In September, very early September 2001, in fact, just a few days before 9-11, the United Nations ran a massive conference. It's one of the largest they've ever run. Uh, they had three different uh, segments to it, a diplomatic conference, a youth conference, and for me, most importantly, an NGO forum. They brought in for this NGO forum about 5,000 delegates, and the conference was entitled the World Conference on the Elimination of Discrimination, Racism, Discrimination, Other Forms of Xenophobia. It was a very ambitious program. It was held in Durban, South Africa, because that, to mark the end of the apartheid era, and then to have this, at least in theory, that's what they announced to the world, this action plan in order to end discrimination and racism, or at least to move towards that goal. What happened a few months earlier was that the entire process was kidnapped by anti-Israel frameworks. It wasn't just the Palestinians. They held a preparatory conference in Tehran, from which, although the uh, at that time the Commissioner of Human Rights, Mary Robinson, said, no, no problem, the Iranian government has promised there would be visas for uh, Israeli delegates because it's a UN preparatory conference for Jewish organizations. None of that ever happened. Mm. And it was at Tehran that they basically wrote the script. When they got to Durban, South Africa, it was already completely cooked. They rolled out the script. This is where, in that NGO forum, at the diplomatic, I should say, the diplomatic conference, Israel and the United States walked out, and the countries that remained negotiated a relatively milder resolution, which only did a little bit of damage attacking Israel. But at the NGO forum, Groups like Human Rights Watch, particularly Human Rights Watch, a gentleman by the name of Reed Brody was the head of the delegation, Amnesty International, and there were over a thousand organizations there, but those were the main international ones, plus Palestinian ones, South African ones. They orchestrated what amounted to the beginning of the boycott movement, of uh, the beginning of the lawfare movement. They passed a package at the end, it was, it, and there was no real debate, there was no real voting, the whole thing was a farce. From beginning to end, very much much marked by anti-Semitism, and they passed in a declaration which became the action plan. For, and this is a quote: "The complete international isolation of Israel as an apartheid state." In a paragraph nearby, they wrote about Israeli war crimes, genocide, ethnic cleansing. This was a brutal attempt to delegitimize and demonize Israel, and it didn't end at Durban. And that's the main point. This has been going on for 20 years. And that was also, from my perspective, that's when I realized I didn't actually go to Durban, but I, I began to become involved as an academic at first, and then as an Israeli who dealt with foreign policy. I began to see what was going on first in the Tehran process and then among the organizers and the supporters. And so I was involved 
and, and very close to people who were uh, directly at Durban, I decided that it was something that I didn't want to actually physically be at. It was a mm. dangerous and, and frightening area. But then I realized that the NGO framework was extremely important, played a very powerful role, and nobody was examining NGOs as political actors, and particular very powerful actors that do a lot of damage. Everybody, oh, NGOs are wonderful, they said, human rights and amnesty, all those other great things. And it turned out they were among the most vicious, anti-Semitic, um, agenda-based organizations under a facade of human rights. And for the last 20 years, this whole process has been playing out. Right, right. And you mentioned there the, the role of Human Rights Watch at Durban. Uh, and we saw just a few months ago in April, Human Rights Watch released its latest report on Israel, which rather predictably accused Israel of systematic discrimination, crimes against humanity, including, of course, apartheid. Uh, so we see a continuum from the Durban process until the present day. Um, just how damaging to Israel's international standing do you feel such reports are? Uh, do they materially impact how Israelis are seen around the world? and your ability and the ability of your countrymen to engage with the world? Or is that sort of halo effect of the NGOs gradually slipping? You know, are people waking up to the politics and the prejudice of groups like Human Rights Watch? I'd say that what we have is a, a series of waves that go up and down. The differences are not that great. There are periods where the NGO attacks are, are particularly strong and damaging, and in periods where they lose some of their ability to uh, have an impact that they tend to to speak within their own anti-Israel frameworks. So uh, you, you mentioned at the beginning, you, you pointed out that a number of countries said they're not going to the 20th and reunion. The UN has periodically tried to revive the Durban process, yeah. and they're planning to do that again in September. And first of all, as you pointed out, the United States, Australia, Canada, uh, the UK, and now, by the way, Hungary was the first European country. And I think it, we're, if the other Europeans do not drop out soon, that, that will be another mark of their inability to deal with these ex extremely important moral issues. But the, it, it's, been go it's an ongoing process. And so what we've seen, I would say, in the last two and a half to three years is another conscious effort. This is not something that happens, I would say, uh, um, coincidentally. These are clearly carefully organized strategic efforts. and. In the last two and a half to three years, around the issue of the International Criminal Court, mm -hmm. the, these, these powerful NGOs have stepped up their activities and their focus there, their targeting of Israel. So, and they've used two main themes, same ones as they used at Durban, essentially. One theme is Israel is an apartheid state. Again, in Durban, the word apartheid in Israel and the NGO forum was constantly linked, and it. it appears many times in the final declaration. No other country in the world is singled out like that, just Israel. But the Israel apartheid story. And so we had a number of NGOs coming out with reports and statements. Uh, Al-Haq, which is a leading Palestinian NGO, uh, the head of it uh, served time in Israeli jails, was convicted of being involved with the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, which is a terrorist organization. And, and they spend a lot of their money and time going to the International Criminal Court, bringing volumes of what they call evidence of Israeli war crimes. And, they, and they've added now to that the issue of apartheid. Then about a few months ago, we had a number of other organizations less visible. And then came uh, Human Rights Watch. I believe maybe six weeks, two minutes ago, you lose track of time and one event happens after the other. And they came out with a 200-page document, they call it a report, which said, up until now, we haven't used the word apartheid, which is a complete lie, they have. Mm. But Israel crossed the line. That was the, the claim that they made. In this 200-page plus page report, they used the word apartheid exactly 200 times. I, I did a count. I just put, put it on, on a document, counted the number of times apartheid appears. And it appears 200 times, which means on the average of once every page. And they ran a big campaign and it got into the major media. Very hard to convince journalists that, that this report is who are often inclined to go along with the anti-Israel theme. When that gets to the answer to your question, that does real damage. Mm. By the fact that these reports, and particularly the Human Rights Watch report, and let's remember Human Rights Watch is run by a gentleman who is obsessive 
about his hostility toward Israel, Kenneth Roth. I've written a lot about that that's out there. Uh, it, it's a personal thing for him. It's, it's not, it's ideological, it's personal. I won't get into the psychology. I don't claim to, to know that much about the psychology. But he has brought within his circle, and he's got a budget of close to 100 million US dollars a year, some of the most active um, Israel bashers and, and anti-Semitic uh, people in the realm that they use the world of the realm of human rights. And they did a huge push on this. And it really, I don't know, I don't want to say it's stuck, but it's a form of soft power warfare. It's um, Israelis who go abroad, people who support Israel, you yourself have written about this. That labeling of Israel, of Zionism, of the Jewish people, Involved in the Zionist project, to use some of the language, and they use colonial settler um, activities and processes as part of that uh, vocabulary, and then adding apartheid. So that goes again back to South Africa. They had the Durban conference in South Africa, celebrating the end of apartheid, and then taking this mechanism that we had for apartheid and saying, now Israel is the new South Africa white apartheid regime. So that has many consequences. Uh, I think that one of the biggest ones is that there are Jews, young Jews around the world, who don't know very much, but they see this um, propaganda, this vicious propaganda, and they begin to accept it because they see it, and it's presented in a, on videos, it's presented in many different formats. Uh, you see this is a part that you see, and if you look at the details, there's no substance to it. Yeah. We saw during the uh, the recent conflict with Hamas uh, an outpouring of hatred, anti-Semitism online. We saw massive street protests around the world, which frequently turned violent. We saw despicable scenes from London where protesters drove into Golders Green and threatened to kill the Jews and rape their daughters. What role did NGOs play, either directly or indirectly, in organizing these protests and in contributing to the narrative of Israeli evil? from which violence inevitably stems? The NGO world is, is a very broad uh, concept, a very broad framework. I call it the NGO industry. We're talking about, at Durban, there were over a thousand organizations, some people say 1,500 organizations that participated. And let's say the NGO monitor tracks around 250 of them. And um, those are the most active, and, and particularly in this realm. And I think they played a significant role. I'm not saying that the protests, or the protests, the attacks would not have happened without the NGOs. Clearly, there is a lot of innate anti-Semitism and, and hostility towards Israel. And then you have the Palestinian supporter movements. Uh, you mentioned the, the attacks in London. Well, when Jeremy Corbyn was the head of the Labour Party, we saw the very vicious anti-Semitism that was there. It's a broad part of, of society. Uh, within and it's part of the left, it's, and, and plus you add to that the the um, Muslim population that some of whom are a large part adopts the anti-Israel framework and, and sees Israel accepts the terminology that's often used. So you put in the word apartheid. Uh, Israel was founded in sin is a very common theme that Israel stole Palestinian land. Yeah, all those themes are war crimes during the Gaza War. The same organizations again, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, Al-Haq, all the Palestinian groups. I'm not going to go through a list of 250, but NGO Monitor tracked a dozen, dozens of them on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on every possible social media venue. They promoted that same labeling of Israel as the most vicious uh, source of, of violence and, and hatred and racism and discrimination and apartheid, all that war crimes mm. in the world. And those were repeated very often in the mainstream media across the board. Uh, I don't follow the Australian media that closely. I'll leave that to you. I, but the New York Times has run a series of major articles. This is not, we're not talking about the rabble out in the streets who don't know anything. The New York Times is very much part of that agenda, all based on the NGO accusations, allegations, and campaigns. Word for word, it is rather, the New York Times has done a whole thing about a, a building that collapsed in Gaza 
mm. underneath were part of the terror tunnels, and they've done videos, and yeah, they've done major articles, and they had a front page uh, assembly of sixty something pictures mm. of Palestinian children, all of which were to say Israel is committing war crimes and doing terrible things. If you look at the sources of that information, it all comes back to the same NGOs. So, again, I'm not saying that the journalists who do a lot of this would be less inclined to be hostile to Israel, but I think they'd have less material to work from and, and not be responding and cutting and pasting from the NGO, um, what they call reports and research and publications. Right. And what is the role of Israeli NGOs in the campaign to delegitimize Israel? To a significant degree, the Israeli NGOs legitimize all the things we've been talking about. Uh, it's important to say that the Israeli NGOs did not go to Durban. And that was 20 years ago. There were less of them. They were less influential. But B'Tselem, which is, I think, probably the most well-known Israeli NGO, for the last, as I said, year and a half, two and a half years ago or so, the apartheid theme came out. Well, just before Human Rights Watch issued its 200-page tome attacking Israel as an apartheid state, B'Tselem came out with a similar, not, not 200 pages, but they used the same apartheid theme. Um, they made it kosher. It was kosher for non-Israeli organizations to call Israel an apartheid state because an Israeli organization, what is sometimes described as a widely respected organization, right. has picked up the theme of apartheid. And again, this is people who run these organizations have particular um, psychological profiles, personality issues, and certainly not functioning in a democratic realm. And their goal is not to convince Israelis to change policies, mm. it's to spread this hostility towards Israel. But Selim says specifically, Chagai Allah, the head of Selim, and uh, other people around that framework, Michael Spard, who is the, uh, the lawyer for a lot of these organizations and, and appears very frequently on, on media, and others will say our goal is to get the, inter the international community to force Israel. And then the next question is, well, what is, is to force Israel? So it used to be to force Israel to go back to the pre-1967 boundaries to end occupation and settlements. But now you see the language of one state creeping in there, the legitimacy of Israel itself. This is an important point because it's come up. It's gone from the Israeli NGOs, or maybe it's gone. It's a combination, not necessarily in that order. Human Rights Watch says it's not that Israeli's policies are, are responsible for what they call apartheid in the West Bank. They say Israel is an apartheid state going back to 1948. The, the definition of having a state of, as a national home for the Jewish people, that's not what they call it. They, they use it in much harsher terms. Well, that was made possible or legitimate by, by B'Tselem. B'Tselem used the term Jewish supremacy when it wrote about the claim that Israel was an apartheid state. That has so many connotations. And again, it gets picked up by young progressives in diaspora who know nothing about the reality of Israel. It's, we could spend hours talking about it. Israel is certainly not an apartheid state. I don't think for you and your audience that's necessary. But it's a very vicious and, and unfortunately it resonates among uh, people who just don't know or are looking to target Israel. Right. Professor Gerald Steinberg, thank you very much. Alex, pleasure to talk to you. Keep up the good work. And you, Gerald. Thank you so much. Mary Kluck is National President of the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. She is a Vice President of the World Jewish Congress and also serves as Chair of the African Australia Jewish Congress. Mary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Lovely to be together. Great pleasure. Albeit in this e-together. Isn't that the new language? Or, or, That's the way of the world these days. E-meet. E-meet. Can you imagine? But at least we can see each other at something. Indeed. Indeed. That does help and it's great. So tell me, Mary, the South African Jewish community is one of the most important in the world uh, and not only has deep roots, but it's spawned its own kind of diaspora with large South African Jewish communities emerging in places like Australia. Tell us about the origins of the South African Jewish community and what are the factors that have caused Jews in South Africa to move abroad uh, over the past 30 or so years? 
Thanks, Alex. It's a great question. We are an interesting community, um, largely uh, originating from the um, Litvak uh, parts of the world. So majority of South African Jews originate as uh, Lithuanians, and that's an interesting conversation in and of itself that many of the South African Jewish community today are able to um, rekindle their Lithuanian heritage. So in terms of uh, passports and so on, there's been some change to the legislation in Lithuania. But um, the majority of South African Jewish community, very few have um, been here for more than three or four generations. So the late in the 1800s, the uh, pogroms in, in Eastern Europe, um, and sort of timelessly with the discovery of gold and diamonds and opportunities in the southern tip of Africa, uh, created opportunities for Eastern European Jews one at a time, and I don't have to tell you the history of, of Jewish migration, but one at a time the dad came or, or a brother came and then slowly but surely uh, helped to finance and to uh, encourage members of their families to join. So the large majority of the Jewish community and I would go as far as to say an 80% is of Lithuanian heritage. Mm -hmm. Then there are obviously Anglo and um, a small community that I hail through of, of German Jews who found refuge in South Africa in the 1930s. Around yeah. 3,600 3, um, German Jews found refuge um, before the borders were closed in South Africa to, to Jews from Germany. But managed to, and so there, yeah, that's pretty much the composition okay. of the community. And in terms of the sort of push factors that have then led to South African Jews emigrating to places like Australia, what have been the, the factors? What have been the motivators over the past few decades? Well, as you know, South Africa was plagued by a, a um, political system, an iniquitous political system, um, apartheid being the, the most obvious. Uh, reference point. And for many South Africans, the the concept of apartheid was um, untenable and they left for political reasons. But the pushback to apartheid and the and the resistance to apartheid, many of the Jewish community were actively involved in that resistance. And we have a very proud heritage, interestingly, of um, not only the the, the most relevant and significant and highly thought of struggle heroes being Jewish. Certainly the majority of the whites in this country who were struggle heroes are, were from our community. But we, um, we're currently publishing a book called Menches in the Trenches, <laughs> and it actually deals with the ordinary unsung heroes in our country who lived through the apartheid era, who played a really important and meaningful role in resisting apartheid in some way. So the resistance to apartheid was a motivation, but the, the apartheid system in and of itself created a socioeconomic reality that was really difficult. And the um, resistance to that created unrest and difficulty and economic frustration. Mm -hmm. And so we have had waves in our community um, through 1976 when there were um, riots in, in Soweto, which is the main township, against certain laws in the country. And then in the build-up to, to the liberation, the resistance and, and, and the fear of what the transition to democracy would be, which was very justified. The global world was of the view that it was going to be a, a civil unrest of, of, of bloodbath proportions. So... It's been political, but also for, for economic opportunities. And we're right. going through something similar at the moment. There is a, there is a concern about the political situation and obviously what comes with that. You know, it's no secret that we have been plagued by uh, corruption and the government has been struggling to come to terms with how to address issues of corruption as well as um, the hardship that despite 27 years of our democracy, so many people in this country are still really, really living beyond, you know, below the poverty line. Some people have, have, have don't have work and probably will never work in their lives. So those are challenges that um, obviously 
push people to review whether there's a future for them in this country. I do want to pause and say that there is another, you know, there are two train tracks in the, in the country. There's the, the, the challenging one, and then there's the really uplifting part of why the community, why there are those like me who are brave to stay and others who have been brave to leave. <laughs> because I think we also know, Alex, that life is full of challenges and we exchange one set of anxieties for another. Indeed, and, you know, no matter the challenges that South African society historically and in contemporary times may pose, it's the only home the community has ever really known. And the concept of migrating abroad, you know, with all the challenges that come with it is a daunting one as well. So I think you're quite right, staying and fighting for the country or, or leaving and trying to pursue a new life, these are both courageous choices. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I think you touched on this in your remarks about the South African contribution to the fight against apartheid, but how does the Jewish community in South Africa see itself within wider South African society? And how do non-Jewish South Africans see your community? So the South African Jewish community is probably one of the most um, admired for the contribution to not only maintaining um, all the infrastructure that comes with running a, a beautiful, vibrant, fabulous community, but also the outreach work. And um, COVID has just made that even more clear, that mm. our community, uh, youngsters from university students rolling up their sleeves and starting soup kitchens, we have, there have been multiple um, incredible uh, projects, including with the Board of Deputies, where millions of, of, of brands have been distributed to the most rural parts of our country to help people with alleviating poverty, helping with education. Our, our community has a, has a magnificent reputation of being that community that does um, engage and, and, and relish the opportunity to make a difference. I, I think for all of us to live a meaningful life, there's nothing quite like the opportunity that uh, and the feeling that these kind of challenges gives one that to be able to be a contribution. You know, people say to you, how can you live with so much poverty around? Well, by leaving, the poverty isn't going away. Yeah, yeah. If I live somewhere else, it's the opportunity that I have to be a contribution is, 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 is incredibly nourishing for the human soul. But, um, you know, there's a fine line at what cost and, and you know, to one's own personal sense of, of um, well-being, etc. So yes. there's, there's no point in denying that South Africa has challenges. Between corruption, the socioeconomic hardship has manifested in cr crime, violent crime in particular. Um, but on a macro level, the last week we've had some very nice glimmers of hope. There's been a, a bill passed into law opening up the um, renewable energy, privatizing that aspect of, of we, with the challenges that we've had with, with energy supply. And I'm sure you've heard about um, uh, what we call load shedding. Where, you know, so that's been really positive. The privatization by a group of entrepreneurs of South African Airways, the airline, including uh, Jewish South Africans who are involved in that new endeavor. Um, and then, obviously, the rule of law being upheld very recently uh, with the uh, sentencing of our former president for his contempt of court. So the independence of our judiciary, the, the, there's a lot to be hopeful for and hopeful about, yes. but um, not by any means pushing under the carpet the, the challenges that, that come with, with living in this vibrant, beautiful community that we have. And if we could turn to foreign policy issues, the relationship between Israel and South Africa has been a complex and a fractious one, and we're increasingly seeing attempts to align the South African struggle against apartheid with the Palestinian issue. The conference which spawned the campaign to isolate and ultimately upend Israel through boycotts, divestment and sanctions, of course, took place in Durban in 2001. Um, a report by Human Rights Watch in April this year asserted that Israel practices systematic discrimination and the time of apartheid against Palestinians. How does all this affect you as a Jew and as a South African uh, and someone who actually understands and witnessed apartheid firsthand? 
So I'm going to, it's quite a few points in that question. And I'm going to start by saying that I was born and have lived my whole life in Durban. My first, um, my first responsibility in Jewish leadership was um, at this so-called Durban conference. So it is incredibly poignant for me and really was, I wouldn't even be exaggerating if I say it was absolutely traumatic. So we have this magnificent Durban Jewish club, um, which still is the Durban Jewish club. And in fact, the Durban Holocaust and Genocide Center, of which I'm the director, um, is housed there, was a response to um, the local country clubs that did not um, allow Jewish members, obviously not black members either, but Jewish members were not welcome at the local uh, country clubs. In response, the Jewish community built a beautiful club, which was a, a place of leisure, place of meeting, resource center, library, etc. And this became home to the delegation, Jewish delegations from all over the world during the Durban conference. And my responsibility was to be the um, in charge and manage and, and facilitate everything in this Durban Jewish club. So I was there pretty much 20 hours a day providing a refuge, and it really was a refuge, mm -hmm. from the hideous um, rhetoric and, and, and vicious attacks that were happening literally 200 metres at the convention centre at the supposed racism conference against racism. Yes. Which turned, which turned on. So for me, that was, um, if I was... I was sort of putting my toe in the water, so to speak, in Jewish leadership. Uh, I resolved there that I would devote the better part of my energy going forward to making sure that our community always felt protected and always had a voice, given what we experienced there with, uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, protocols of the elders of Zion being sold on the streets where I'd walked as a child. Yeah. And, uh, it was really, really tough. So their part, as you say, BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, was formed there and emboldened there. And um, so I, I think, as you referenced, South Africa has been ground zero for BDS because yes. if the apartheid analogy would resonate anywhere, it obviously resonates in South Africa. The part that you also made, the point that you also made, is that it is absolutely inequitous to demean and diminish the cruelty and the awful system that was apartheid by referencing Israel as an apartheid state. But if you walk the streets of Durban and you anecdotally say to somebody, don't you want to come to a rally and support people who are being oppressed like we were? And, you know, it, obviously all of that adds complexity to how we, you know, how we are able to challenge this really, really vicious narrative. So the, the role that the South African Jewish community plays in, 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 uh, in making sure that this narrative is not entirely hijacked for political purposes is incredibly important. And um, so the, and the work that we do in engaging with government, but I also want to just on a, on a um, contextual point, suggest to you that the ANC, the African National Congress, which is the ruling party in South Africa, were in exile for many years during the apartheid era. Where, I mean, and I, I think for many of your listeners, they understand what apartheid was, but pe black people in this country, people in this country of color were treated appallingly. No, they, they weren't, I mean, there was a curfew. Uh, and, and as a middle-aged white South African, I am deeply ashamed of having grown up in an, such an iniquitous system. But it, it felt normal at the time, sad to say. But having said that, the African National Congress, who were many of whom were in exile in, in uh, Mozambique or in Lusaka, in Zambia and so on, they will talk to you and tell us about how they shared a fax machine with the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So the, the, the ruling party in this country has enormous affinity and empathy for the plight of the Palestinian people. Yeah. So we are juxtaposed between the lies of Israel being apartheid, but yes. by the same token, the, the empathy for people who are seemingly unable to be the masters of their own destiny. And I think I speak for majority of the Jewish community when I say that we long for the day where there will be two states 
for two people living side by side in secure borders. But it's a complex neighborhood. Yes. And, 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 and we in Australia and South Africa and other parts of the world are, are not in a position to, to dictate or to engage in the discussion. It needs to be like it was in South Africa. The conflict needs to be resolved by the people on the ground around the table. Yes. And I think that's what, that's what we as a community and in our leadership roles implore our government every day to, to rather than import this tragic conflict onto the streets of South Africa, we should export the magnificent model that South Africa were able to implement in our unexpected and unique transition to democracy. And, you know, there's a real opportunity, we believe, for the South African government to play a role. But in order to do that, they need to have the, the, the trust of both sides. Safe to say they have the trust of the Palestinians. Yes. But they need to build the trust of the Israelis in order to be honest brokers in helping to facilitate this tough, tough transition that we all hope and pray will come sooner than later. And it, it seems like your model, as you presented for the South African model of conflict resolution, you know, it, it's been perverted and distorted by the other side. Rather than taking the lessons that you've so eloquently just imparted about how to actually solve the conflict, they've actually taken a different path, a different view that with international pressure, international isolation, boycott, sanctions and the rest, that's how you bring about conflict resolution. Absolutely. And we all know that when, they, when, they, when the truth uh, and, the, and the resolution to our conflict came about, it was because it was years, literally three years of sitting around the table. And, and as we all know, you don't make peace with your friends. You make right. peace with people who you've had a long struggle and, and, and a long complex relationship with. And it yes. takes time. And, and yes. it needs to be begin sooner than later. So how does that, your question, how does that manifest for us as a community? It's complicated because as South African Jews, we are celebrated. Religious freedom and religious, I don't even want to say the word tolerance because it, it sounds to me like it's only tolerated. There yeah. is an embracing of religion. South Africa is, a, is a, a religious country. Majority of South Africans identify with one form of worship or another largely Christian, and there is a great deal of admiration and, and respect for all religious practice. And we live as Jews the most uniquely free. To walk with a yarmulke, you would have people walk up to you and say shalom and hello, etc. The difficulty is the relationship with um, the, the relationship that we have as a Jewish community Israel and how that manifests for and 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 as you say is distorted in yes. South African Jews being responsible for the for the activities of a foreign government. So it isn't it isn't simple, but um, anti-Semitism we have probably the the lowest numbers of anti-Semitism among the lowest numbers of anti-Semitism uh, in the world. But as we all know, we've all just been through a tough. Um, time now with the conflict and um it's it, i mean i know that's not the, the the discussion on our on our for our conversation today but uh we are and we've been in touch with our global uh friends and partners as we have with you etc we know that our region everybody nobody's been uh left out of the difficult social media impact, et cetera, that this conflict has brought to each diaspora community. And South Africa is, is we are still feeling the effects of it. Yes. And in light of all these, these pressures, these challenges that you've articulated, the political, the international, the socioeconomic, um, are you concerned for the future of the South African Jewish community? I detect great tones of optimism, actually, and hope in what you say notwithstanding the challenges, but in particular, I'm looking at the youth of your community that are detached from the historical developments that shaped your community, migration and upheaval, uh, witnessing firsthand Israel's great triumphs in times of peril. Are you concerned for the identities of the Jewish youth in your country? 
Um, not so much the identity. I think there's a strong, solid Jewish identity amongst the majority of our community, particularly the youth. Um, I think the challenges that I mentioned before, we are going through one of those times now. I think South Africa has been, you know, um, ebbs and flows and the conflict in the Middle East in terms of the Jewish community always uh, heightens the the, um, the exhausting uh, work that needs to be done to yeah. push back against the, the BDS, et cetera. But as far as the economic issues and the socioeconomic challenges in the country, we're going through a period at the moment where people are reviewing their, their young people and considering Israel mainly as a as a, um, a place to move. But we've been through them before. We're a resilient community. And there is also a huge sense of value to the life that we live here, the, the value as a human being, the value of being a contribution, the magnificent, rich Jewish life that is part of our everyday um, that comes with probably being part of a developing country where bureaucracy is not quite what it might be in, in the first world. And um, you can uh, take your talents and take your entrepreneurial spirit and really harness it in a way that is very fulfilling in a country like ours. But I say not without challenges. And um, I think, you know, we, just to speak personally, we, uh, we have three children, two of whom live abroad, and one lives a very meaningful, busy, full life with grandchildren in South Africa. So I think that's probably, for me, the, the sadness is that we're not all living in New South Wales with, with family around the corner from one another. And I think that... Um, but I think Zoom's helped, and I think um, the, the silver lining of COVID has been that we can all keep in close contact and we can, uh, you know, all, all the things that we were saying earlier about being able to be in close touch with one another. Yes. But um, the South African Jewish community is resilient, and I think hope is the word that I would like to use as um, the opportunity to make a tangible impact in the lives of people less fortunate. Don't underestimate how, how fulfilling that is in, in contributing to a meaningful life. And yes. as I said, a Jewish life that is full of 95% of the Jewish youth uh, attend Jewish day schools, brilliant quality of healthcare, private healthcare, so on. So the South African Jewish community is a busy, but not, all, not always, it's not always easy. But we are resilient and hopeful. Wonderful. Mary, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks and keep safe and well. Thank you and you. Angelina Kazmaier is the head of online activism at ACTIL, an Israeli based organization leading an online community to combat racism and hatred online. Angelina, welcome. Thank you have you a very interesting background that took you from Africa to Israel and fighting online anti-Semitism despite not being Jewish. Tell us about your journey and what motivated you to become so active in the struggle against Jew hatred. Well, it's a good question and a um, kind of long-winded answer uh, that I will give you, but um, Though I am not Jewish, I grew up um, going to a school that was right next to the only Jewish school in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, so I've had Jewish friends my whole life and I felt very connected to them and I loved their culture and the, the way that they just are with their families. And it kind of uh, went on with me throughout my life. I did that. Um, and then when I left high school, I went and worked on cruise ships. Um, and there I met uh, my now boyfriend, um, who is Israeli, and all of his friends that were on the security team, they were all from Israel. And it was the first time I met, you know, real Israelis. I was like, okay, cool, these are really, really nice people. Um, I really like, like them, and obviously like my boyfriend. Um, and then the 2012 operation in Israel um, actually happened when the Operation Pillar of Defense while my boyfriend and I were dating and we were abroad on the cruise ships. Um, and already then I saw on social media what is going on with people demonizing and 
completely spreading false information and things about the Jewish state. And I knew that it was false, not because of myself, but because my boyfriend told me all the things that he knew that were happening because his brother was in reserves fighting in that war at the time. So it was crazy to see already then, 2012, which is almost 10 years ago, uh, what the difference was between the reality and uh, what was happening online. And uh, I kept then already became kind of an advocate for um, fighting for the Jewish people online, even though I didn't know that that was what I was doing. Um, and you fast forward to 2014, when my boyfriend was in actual uh, Tsuketan in the war. Um, and that was when social media really blew up and uh, Hamas started using false information and fake images and uh, propaganda within their social media campaigns. Um, and Israel wasn't doing the best job at it themselves. So I saw again the two sides of the coin with being extremely worried about what was going on. And I also saw how it manifested not only in um, anti-Zionist uh, rhetoric, but actual Jew hatred where collectively Jews were blamed for everything that was going on in Israel. Um, mm. And that is anti-Semitic in and of itself. Mm. So this is uh, what, what brought me to, to care about the issue and to care about um, Jew hatred, not only online, but offline. Um, and, and so how did ACTIL stem from, from this passion, from this discovery of yours? So because I met my boyfriend almost 10 years ago now, um, I wanted to study in Israel um, and I needed to finance that. So I came and I studied at the IDC. Uh, which is where I did my um, BA and my MA. And I graduated uh, last year from my MA. Um, and in my BA, I joined an honors program um, that is for public diplomacy. And one of the aspects of public diplomacy is obviously digital public diplomacy, which ACTIL specializes in, and that is what we do. Um, and I did my internship here. And I just so fell in love with the feeling of doing something good for the Jewish people, even if it is just just online. Um, because it was so needed and I saw that it was something that that wasn't going anywhere and that nobody is really um, successfully like eradicating not that the all groups over the world are not doing a good job they are but it's just such a hatred that is so deeply rooted within society it seems that it just doesn't seem to go anywhere um, Angelina tell us what is happening online I mean we all get a general sense of you know, the sort of hatred and falsehoods that permeate social media platforms. We see Holocaust denial of glorification. We see the demonization of Israelis and Zionism, uh, the harassment of Jewish activists, rape threats, murder threats, awful things happening online. But the work that you do now forces you to confront this and look at this on a daily basis. So tell us what exactly is going on, how deep-seated, how extensive is this problem online? Oh, it's become extremely, extremely problematic. I mean, it's always been a difficult issue and there's always been bias and there's always been opinions and there's always been a lot of people trying to explain the conflict in their opinion and their eyes. And I get that because a lot of people have um, or either uh, come from Palestinian refugee heritage or uh, have friends that are or people that are Israeli or have Israeli parents. So there's a lot of people on both sides that trying to, you know, tell their story and tell their narrative as they should. This is, you know, freedom of speech. Mm. But it goes beyond that in a sense that, I mean, now in the, the recent operation that we had um, uh, in Israel, the Guardian of the Walls, it brought out um, this this absolutely very terrifying. Um, intersectionality issue that was there before, but not in such a crazy sense as it has been, um, especially in the US I'm talking about now, just because that is how we saw a lot of the people, uh, you know, putting together false info or um, very biased information and spread that to their millions of followers. And recently we also saw uh, journalists writing a statement on how that there should be a different way to cover the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right, in right. a way that they favor uh, the Palestinian side over the Israeli side, which is yeah. not, not reporting, that's not journalism, yeah. that's opinion pieces. So uh, it's very scary to see that because Israel is a tiny country. It's so small that I don't think people really understand how small it is and how 
how little people actually live here and that it's the whole world is talking about this tiny little sliver of land and these people that have been fighting for uh, decades. So it's uh, unbelievable. And it seems that a a new battleground has opened in in the war on Israel. I mean, we've seen it in traditional forums, the university campus uh, and in media, in the United Nations, non-governmental organizations. We all know those forums well and what goes on there, who the actors are, what their tactics are. But now with online, and as you alluded to in this most recent war, we've seen a whole new dimension of this online war. And that, I think, is the the role of celebrities. Whereas in the past, you know, celebrities, pop stars, athletes, talk show hosts were very reluctant to take positions on these sorts of conflicts, either because they conceded they didn't have the requisite knowledge and expertise or maybe they feared alienating their fans, but they kind of kept out of these things. But in this conflict, we saw supermodels and footballers uh, and movie stars from Hollywood tweeting very extreme content against Israel to millions of people, um, many of whom are naive and uninformed who would have had their first exposure to Israel through these sorts of posts. Um, And my perspective is that this endangers not only Israel long-term, but Jews globally. how real is this concern? Uh, how deep-seated is this problem of celebrities making these social media forays against Israel? Oh, absolutely. It is a huge, huge issue. And it's something that we, as you said, like we just saw it a few uh, weeks ago. It's not something that, um, that happened before. And if that was why, I think the entire world of uh, pro-Israel advocacy and, uh, and anti-Semitism was so surprised to find mm. Uh, all of these celebrities speaking about the issue. I mean, it's nothing new that uh, the Bella and Gigi and Anwar Khadids of the world are speaking about it. We know that they have a Palestinian dad that comes from the from the region. Not that they've ever been here, but it's understandable that they would want to speak on the issue and not from the side that favors Israel, obviously. Um, so that was, it was a surprise in the way that they spoke about it a lot and consistently, but it wasn't a surprise that they did. What was surprising is then when John Oliver and Trevor Noah, for instance, talk show hosts that are looked to for um, insight and inspiration and yeah. uh, things that usually people think are on point and are, you know, that they take their word for it and laugh at it and think, yeah, this is great. They are the ones that then use their platforms to spread information that is so one-sided yeah. Um, not checked through from from both narratives. I mean, there it was so blatantly biased that it, it you you could see that from a mile away. You didn't need to be on either side to understand that. Yeah. And it is an issue, and it endangers um, Jews worldwide. I mean, we saw that the anti-Semitism skyrocketed like we have never seen in the last few decades, even in terms of offline violence from what was said online and from these videos and from the excitement, from the rallies where they chant from the river to the sea, Palestine, we're free not understanding that this means that there will be no more Israel, which means we're calling for the destruction of it. And all of these these things that that people see and then they just say it to be in. It has become a trend to be anti-Israel, to be anti-Zionist. Not full well understanding that this is... Not, I'm not talking about criticizing Israel. Again, we say all the time, criticizing Israel, you can do. But saying that Israel shouldn't exist or saying that, uh, that it needs to be eradicated, this is anti-Semitic because it denies the Jewish people rights to their own self-determined homeland. Um, right. And what people don't understand. They, they see a good guy, they see a bad guy. And then they're like, okay, the good guy, the poor, oppressed, small um, people that uh, are living under army occupation or under a siege in Gaza, and this is this is what they see, and they think that that is the, the two sides of the story. But it's not. And the longer I live in Israel, the more I understand how complicated it is. So, you know, the, the, the more there are complexities, the more there are things that you try to understand. Um, so people that don't live here, have never been here, do not have family that live in either West Bank, Gaza, or Israel, getting involved, it, it really, it is an issue. It is a really, really big issue not just in terms of Israel's image. I think it has much wider implications and it's really detrimental and dangerous to Jews everywhere. Indeed. And and given the scale of this phenomena, given you know how widespread the social media incitement is, given the power of these social media influencers to spread their message of hatred, 
for those who want to combat the hatred and promote peace and tolerance, can anything be done? What should be done? Oh, it's such a difficult question, um, but I think that fighting fire with fire never achieves anything. Yeah. Um, and I think that it, what we're seeing with the hatred that is being spread is that it really is from this one side saying that you are wrong, you are wrong, we are right, you are wrong. And I think the correct way to go about this, understanding, first of all, it's a complicated conflict and acknowledging that. Acknowledging the pain and suffering and loss on both sides of the conflict because there are. And then trying to, to understand each other's narratives, that is what should be done. But it can't just be on, on one side of the narrative trying to understand the other side without the other side trying to understand the second side. So I think that for those that want to, that are on the pro-Israel fighting anti-Semitism side that are there, being empathetic first and foremost is extremely, extremely important. It's trying to explain, to understand the situation and then to explain your side and to see where there is a common ground that you can talk about and say, yes, this actually sucks for both people. Let's try and see with dialogue and with understanding, how can we move past this? Or maybe we can't. And maybe it's, let's agree to disagree on uh, these issues and let's move forward and trying to find other ways to just peacefully coexist. But what I've seen lately, and this is what terrifies me the most, is that people are saying, um, that there shouldn't be a coexistence because then you're asking uh, the oppressed to live with their oppressor. Right, right. Where this is a very strange statement to me because why, why would anyone endorse not having coexistence, not being together peacefully in the same area that both people want to be in? Both people are not going anywhere. So the only way to move forward is to find that mutual understanding, that empathy, that coexistence and seeing how peace together can be achieved. Um, right. In terms of online activism, um, I think when people see articles and um, misinformation that is being spread, misinformation, fake news, and hatred should always be reported to the platforms. And the platforms are doing a much better job at, at trying to clear it of that. Um, but when it's criticism of Israel, I would encourage people to comment, to write something underneath and to say, um, hey, this is maybe not exactly accurate. I know that there have been some things that have gone wrong, but the way to move forward would be to discuss and, and et cetera, et cetera, what I just explained. So I think that those are the two main things to get involved in, but being empathetic on each side, I think, is, is extremely important and it's something that's lacking. Just on, on the, the point of narratives, competing narratives and the messaging, um, and I think you you made a very astute observation. Where we've gone to now is not that we're in a conflict. You know, we've understood this for decades as the Arab-Israeli conflict. But now it's been characterized as one people wantonly massacring another, committing the worst atrocities known to man, genocide, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, deliberately killing women and children, reveling in their blood, all this sort of stuff which is very familiar to any of us who understand the history of anti-Semitism. And it seems that if you counter that with a message about hope and peace and two states and diplomacy and coexistence, it's not going to be persuasive because if someone accepts even a little bit that one side is irredeemably evil, you don't negotiate or have coexistence with evil. You have to fight it. You have to destroy it. So is it really the way to counter this by advancing a hopeful message or perhaps we need to both counter the, the lies and the slander and then pivot to a promising, hopeful, optimistic message? Or do you think it's best to ignore the hatred entirely and not play into that game and advance a whole different narrative? No, I don't, I don't think that ignoring the hate is uh, ever good. I think that any narratives or any conversations that are being had need to be countering, first and foremost, the lies and the misinformation and to say this is incorrect, this is false. There is no genocide, okay? A genocide, and this is what I don't, like, this is a crazy phenomenon that we all do not understand why the term genocide is being used if the population grows. That is not a genocide. So mm. there, are, there are discriminatory uh, things that are happening or uh, bad treatment that could be better. Okay, then call it that. But the terms of genocide, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, 
these are very strange terms because if a population grows within the place where they're supposedly being uh, mass murdered or uh, ethnically cleansed from, then that wouldn't be the case. So this is extremely contradicting. And this is where they, the advocates need to say there may be a lot of problems, but this is not it. Um, right. And then to pivot, exactly like you said, it's first and foremost to counter the lies, but not with hatred. Okay, and this is really, really important because if you counter the lies and say, you lying person with no understanding of the context, that person is never going to listen to you. So the way to counter is always, as I said, with empathy, saying, I see you've read this. This is not accurate. You can't have genocide, blah, blah, blah. And then say, in this uh, sense, uh, we should be looking for a way to work together to make sure that there is a better place for both people to live and to be. So exactly what you said, counter the lies with empathy, not hatred, and then move on to pivot to something that is hopeful and peace and diplomacy, etc. Um, for sure. Well, thank you for all that wonderful insight and those perspectives, Angelina. And thank you for all of your invaluable work and for your solidarity. It means a great deal to us. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Alex. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And that concludes this episode of the Jewish World Podcast, brought to you by the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Find us and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share the episode through your social media. Thank you.